I have no fear of failure. You know, I have failed. I have felt failure. I know what failure is like, and I'm still here, you know, and it gives me the confidence to push. Nelson Mandela had so much compassion for his brothers and sisters. People don't realize it's about the Beatles, that they knew they were brilliant. You saw thousands of people along the rail line just standing there to say goodbye to Bobby Kennedy. One story in every human being that defines who you are. Do we film on a volcano that's just about to explode? But the reason this mail pack has been astoundingly successful is because there are pictures of rabbits on the envelope. I mean, I remember it so well where, you know, I was like, hello, Susie, hi, it's LD. I was like, oh, hi, Lyle, what's up? I mean, I think there's something about chaos, right? It either, you either you run from it or you run towards it. And for me, there was really this in instance of wanting to run towards it. So uh, welcome to Great Minds. And our guest today is a, uh, you can't use these words lightly, Larry, but you are a genuine icon in comedy. Uh, your body of work is second to none. And uh, you're one of these guys who we've been seeing and watching for years, mostly behind the camera or in the case of one of your Seinfeld cameos coming out of an airplane bathroom, as I recall. <laughs> yes. uh, and I'd love to begin, we're going to talk about all that, but I'd love to begin by going back to your roots in Brooklyn. Sure. And there is something about that place whether you go way back to people like Mel Brooks, to people that are part of your world, like Larry David, there is something about Brooklyn that has created an incredible body of talent. What is it about that place that makes it so magical and in comedy in particular? Well, you said the word magical and in a way, not to throw that term around very loosely, but if you think about like Kingston, Jamaica, you know, what was it about Kingston, Jamaica that made it the center of reggae music? So many amazing reggae stars came out of this little trench town area. And where I grew up and where Larry grew up and where Mel Brooks grew up, Brighton Beach, that area down there by Ocean Parkway was, and Coney Island is there as well, that for some reason was a hotbed of Jewish American comedy talent. And I think you could, you could, we could kind of analyze, you know, the train is going by overhead. Everybody's got to be loud and to be heard. Um, there's a lot of emphasis on text, on reading, on, um, you know, communication that requires a kind of a, a quippy sort of quick uh, uh, sort of exchange. And, and, but really all of those uh, are possible reasons don't adequately explain how Mel Brooks, Larry David, Joseph Heller, all these amazing people emerged from that neighborhood. And I felt very lucky, like almost like it was like something you had to do if you were from that neighborhood. You had to go into comedy in one way or another. Everybody in my neighborhood was funny. You know, everybody was funny in one way or another, you know, and you were just surrounded by it. You know, my father was funny and I've talked to Larry about it and he's surrounded by funny people. So I don't think that we even thought of ourselves as the funny people in the neighborhood. We were observers of a very surreal kind of uh, environment. And, and some of us just really kind of developed a sensibility that came out of that. Amazing. So you go to uh, John Dewey High School. Yes. Were you involved? Were you like? Were you involved in sketch comedy, stand up? You, you, you and your friends. Were you pulling pranks? You know, go well, go back to then. Interestingly enough, I went to Dewey because my neighborhood had gotten very violent, and I wanted to sort of get out of the uh, that syndrome that was kind of developing the drugs and violence in my neighborhood. Uh, I applied. I was always drawing and doing caricatures and uh, writing stories. And I, I applied to the high school of music and art and I applied to the high school of art and design and I got into both. But my parents wouldn't let me go because they didn't want me going into Manhattan every day. So I thought, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? And John Dewey had just opened like a year or two before my cousin went there. So I applied to John Dewey and went there and it was a liberating experience, but I did not have a dream of stand up 
or comedy. I, I, I admired it. I paid attention to it. I knew all the credits on all the variety shows. I'd memorized the writing credits on the variety shows or on the sitcoms. So I knew who was doing what. And I was, it was like a dream though, a dream that seemed very, very far away. And I went to Dewey and I, I sort of became one of the, one of the political cartoonists on the school newspaper. I did stuff like that. And I thought that would be the route that I would take actually. And then my parents got divorced and my mother moved my brother and I down to Florida and that was where I started meeting. See, in Brooklyn, as you probably know, you could never say out loud, oh, I want to be an actor. I want to be a comedian. It was, you would be abused for that, you know. So it was all suppressed at that time. Then I got to Florida and suddenly the cool kids were in the drama class, you know. They had a coffee house at that high school. That high school wound up being a, a hotbed of uh, uh, art, you know, and expression. And suddenly I took that leap. I met somebody, a guy named Adam Leslie, whose father was actually a professional comedian. And he himself at 16 was working in Miami as a stand-up comedian. And we started hanging out. And suddenly that world, he opened the door to me to that world. And I started to imagine, wow, maybe there's a way to do this. Maybe there's a way to transition and become like a TV writer or something like that, a joke writer, you know? And right. so Florida wound up being as seminal a place for me as Brooklyn in that respect, you know? Also well-known for uh, housing Jews down there. A lot of Jews. And at that time, it was the end of the old Miami Beach also. So you had a lot of, they had all these motels on Collins Avenue, and they all had comedians playing there, Tubby Boots and Pearl Williams, all these dirty comedians of sex rated comedy, Mr. Tubby Boots. And we, my friends and I, would get stoned to go what? see them. <laughs> uh, before we start, how many of you nice people have never seen me perform live at a nightclub? Have you see, raise the hand. Never. Oh, we have a few virgins here, eh? Well, first of all, so that we don't get too shocked. I feel this way, no matter what I say, no matter what I do, you came to see me. I did not go looking for you. This is not a sewer. You don't fall in here accidentally. You must come to Gunnings to search me out. How do you like the outfit? Ain't this something? Eh? What good is soap alone in your room? Come hear that music play. My life is a cabaret, old chum. Come to the cabaret. You felt like you were in this kind of, it was seedy, but it was it was kind of really glamorous in a weird way too, you know? And that really kind of also uh, infused my sensibility to a large degree. I thought, you know, the thing to do would be to go to college, but I really had a lot of ambivalence. And by the time I was ready to go to college, I really wanted to just go out to California and see what I could do and figure it out. But I went to Rutgers for a year, my father was living in New Jersey at that time. I wanted to get closer to him. I hadn't seen him for a while. As soon as I got into Rutgers, he moved back to Brooklyn. So I was stuck at Rutgers for a year. And so then I dropped out and then I went with my friend Adam. He says to me, he was actually working as a comedian with a band. He was like the opening act for a band that was traveling through the South and he was lonely and he said, come join me. We'll be a comedy team and we'll travel through the South. And I was like, yeah. And I met him in uh, Baton Rouge, Louisiana. They gave me a foam green tuxedo. And the two of us would open the show for this uh, band that did like a top 40 and disco music and stuff in lounges like at Ramadas. And we, we did that for, for a few months, traveling through the South. Jackson, Mississippi, all these weird places till we got to Peoria. And in Peoria, this guy who ran the band was a very uh, a kind of sadistic guy. And we clashed a lot and we wound up getting into a fight with him, like a physical fight with him on stage during the show and creating a riot in Peoria. And Adam and I were kicked out of Peoria, Illinois by the police. 
And but I had that experience of like being on stage and doing, you know, material and writing material. Also, I was very inspired. Adam was much lazier than I was. He was very willing to do his old routines with me. And I learned them. But also, I wanted to write new material. I was very inspired by what was going on. Steve Martin had become like a kind of an icon already at that point. And like comedy was kind of really expanding. And I was inspired by that. Uh, would you welcome Steve Martin? Thank you very much. I don't deserve this. Well, um, hi, folks. Um, may I take your order? <laughs> so, um, oh, actually, uh, while I'm out here tonight, I've uh, been doing a lot of TV shows lately, you know, like Tonight Show, you know, and big deals, you know, and, and I begin to realize that in order to succeed in television, you have to appeal to everybody, you know, from the garbage collector uh, right on down to the business executive. <laughs> And um, I realize that there's one group I'm just not appealing to. In fact, uh, very few people have even tried to appeal to them. Dogs. Now, a lot of dogs watch TV, you know, and there's nothing really on that they can enjoy, you know. Maybe a couple of dog food commercials and uh, that's it, you know. So I took it upon myself and I worked up a comedy act for dogs. Now, I know that sounds stupid, but I did the act for my dog, and <laughs> he went into hysterics. When Steve Martin came along, he was, like, not from Brooklyn. He was not Jewish. He was not doing observational humor. He was doing almost uh, uh, before Andy Kaufman, in a way, because I, I don't think even Andy Kaufman was on the scene yet. He was doing almost, like, anti-comedy, you know, where he was almost commenting on the comedy, you know. So... I found that to be, for some reason, and I remember I was just thinking about this the other day. We went to see him, Steve Martin, at Bubba's, and at the end of the show, rather than say goodnight, he brought the entire audience out onto the street, hailed a cab, and drove away. And I thought, wow, this is like he is just breaking all the rules. He is expanding the boundaries. And that really got my mind, you know, sort of uh, percolating about the potential for comedy. Before I start, this is a dumb thing to talk about, but I gave my cat a bath the other day. And I'd always heard that you weren't supposed to give cats baths, you know. But my cat came home, and he's really dirty, and I decided to give him a bath, and it was great. If you have a cat, don't worry about it. They love it. He sat there. He enjoyed it. It was fun for me. Uh, the fur would stick to my tongue, but other than that, it was really great. And somehow you then end up, I guess we'd have to call it an early seminal moment, uh, working on Fridays. Fridays, I got very lucky. Uh, um, I was living in California. I had moved to California at some point. I was parking cars. And I would walk home. I, I was working in Marina Del Rey, and I had a little apartment in Venice. And I'd worked the night shift. And so I'd walk home from Marina Del Rey to Venice. And one day I saw this tall, lithe comedian that I recognized, a black man named Darrow Igus. And he had his little dog and they were out on the beach and he was smoking a joint. And I had seen him in car wash. And I was the kind of person, my father was always saying, go up and talk to them, go up and talk to them. So I went up in the sand in my black and whites and I started talking to him and he was really nice and we got along. And I said I was a writer, and he needed material, and I started writing for him. Cut to, I leave California, I go back to New York for a year, I work in the Cascals, all these things happen. I come back to California a year later, not having heard about Darrow, remembering that his wife also worked for Larry Flint's publication called Sheet Magazine. I thought, well, maybe I'll call her up and write some freelance humor. You know, I had sold a couple of pieces before and I called her up and she said, yeah, you could, you could write some stuff for the magazine, but Darrow's here and he just got cast on this TV show and he's been looking for you. And I got on the phone and he said, if you could put your material together, they will read your material at Fridays. 
So I, I was you know, very ambitious and I got all my material together, but I also wrote a bunch of new stuff, hitchhiked to the interview at ABC Prospect uh, in, in Los Feliz and had a great interview there. You know, uh, Jack Burns was there. Jack Burns took my material and he fancied himself a great reader of cold reader of material. And he started reading my sketch and I thought he was kind of ruining it. And I had the temerity, if you could believe it, to go, you know what, I'm going to stop you. Let me read it. And I read the material and they loved me. And I said, look, man, the only thing I ask is, you know, whether you whether I get the job or not, I understand how that works. Just don't leave me hanging. Let me know whether I have the job or not. And I hitchhiked back from Los Feliz to Hollywood, where I was living at that time. And when I got back, the phone was ringing. It was Jack Burns. And he, he literally said, I have good news and bad news. The good news is I got back to you quickly and my heart sunk. And then he said, the bad news is you're hired. And I got hired on Fridays. I mean, that was a life-changing experience. It went from being a bellhop, essentially, and a parking valet to being a TV writer. And that's where I met Larry David also and Michael Richards. And Andy Kaufman, who was already like an entity at that time, that I, that I knew, at least I knew his work. And so getting Andy Kaufman on the show seemed super exciting to me. Uh, we had discussed, the writers and he and the producers discussed this conceptual idea of kind of uh, interrupting a sketch live. And this was the kind of stuff that really turned me on, you know. I love the idea of, again, breaking these rules, expanding these boundaries, exploring unknown territory, asking the question, what is funny? Why do we laugh? You know, and those philosophical questions really drove me. And Andy was like the guru of that idea, you know. <laughs> What's this? Roast beef? A-U-J-U-S? <laughs> That's roast beef au jus. That means a... Uh, uh, Jewish man brings it to you. Let's talk about Fridays a little bit. You run into some people who would become, you know, instrumental in future years in your career and, and are, are legends in their own right. Talk about Larry, Michael Richards. Tell us about that first meeting. Well, the, the interesting thing is, like, I didn't know Larry. Larry's aunt was a teacher at my elementary school, but I didn't know Larry at all. I mean, I didn't, uh, uh, I didn't really, Larry grew up like 10 blocks from where I grew up. I mean, he's like about a decade older, but he is from that neighborhood in the same way that I am. Um, so when we met on Fridays, we had an immediate simpatico. We immediately bonded and connected. Our sensibility was very, very uh, uh, similar. And we were able to write together right away and hang out together. And we immediately became close friends and related to each other. And we're, and we're really able to sort of build on each other's ideas. And, and it was a lot of fun to be around Larry at that time. Because Larry, I was like 22, 23. So Larry was like 32 or whatever. He was already a man, you know. And I was still kind of a boy in a way, trying to figure out what the hell is going on, where he kind of knew what he wanted. And I really admired and respected his vision, even at that time. Michael was, in, the, in a kind of way like Andy Kaufman, perhaps, he was in his own world. And his, his imagination was just so original. But he was also like constantly looking to push things, to connect things in a weird way. He was very into Joseph Campbell and like sort of the, the source of humor, you know? And I found that also fascinating. He was doing things, again, Larry was somebody I could relate to like Robert Klein, 
but Michael was more like almost like a Steve Martin or somebody who was from a totally different background, different ethnicity, and different set of uh, influences. And I found that uh, a, a very um, exciting and exhilarating to be around as well. So I got lucky with these kind of twin, these sort of twin influences at a very seminal time in my life. Yes, it is, Betsy. And of course, that brings up the old chicken egg controversy. Does bad sex make for a bad relationship or does a bad relationship make for bad sex? <laughs> well, we could talk about that to the cows come home, Dan, but oh, here comes Rich, so let's settle back and watch the fireworks. Morning. You want to hit? <laughs> It's only 7.30 a.m. I'm having a nice cup of heroin. Brr, I can feel that chill from here, Bets. Oh. Look, there's only two eggs left. Do you want one? No, I don't want one egg. Why? What's wrong with just one egg? Because I don't get much out of just one egg. Whoa, I just believe he just rolled his eyes when she wasn't looking. Never a good sign in a relationship, Dan. I think you're right, Betsy. Let's see if they caught it on the isolated camera. behind the back eye roll. I think we're going to see some action here. And do you remember, Larry, the first time you had success where there was a piece that you wrote or an idea that yours that made it into the show? Yeah, I mean, there was a time we were the, the writers on, on Fridays like the performers too and, and this is true on Saturday Live too very competitive at that time. You're young, you want to get a leg up, you want to get going. By the way, our, our writers' offices are in the sub-basement at ABC Prospect where Benson was done, where Jerry Seinfeld was a, um, he was a supporting character on Benson and actually got fired. We, we used to hang out then in the, in the sub-basement at ABC, and then he got fired from Benson, which wound up being a good move, I think, probably. Um, but the, so, so there was a lot of competition, and the opening sketch was the coveted slot, you know, all, all the attention, all the resources were always poured into that opening sketch because it was the first thing people would see. And at a certain point, this guy, Bruce Kirschbaum, who also was kind of, a, you know, an American Jewish, idiosyncratic, interesting person, he and I were collaborating a lot and we both wanted to do the opening sketches. So we started writing the opening sketches and we wrote one. Actually, Larry had suggested the idea, even though he really had no interest in it. He, because we people were just looking for titles that would be sort of funny, and he said the Ronnie Hara picture show. I'm frightened. Relax, Janet. They probably have a phone. Oh, Brad, this place looks evil. I feel sinister forces at work. Janet, you're getting paranoid. You shouldn't have smoked that joint. <laughs> They're probably just a bunch of old hippies. Uh, this is my old lady, Janet. Uh, we were on our way to an anti-nuke rally when our car broke down. And that was, uh, you know, to take Ronald Reagan and put him into the Rocky Horror Show. And all, you know, Richard Nixon as Meatloaf and all. It just all started to flow. And Bruce and I wrote that piece. And it was like a 20-minute live musical sketch. And it got a lot of attention. It was picked up by the media. It was, a, it was a pretty big deal at that time. And it was kind of like the uh, throwing down the gauntlet to a, a, a weaker uh, part of Saturday Night Live at that time when they were more vulnerable. And suddenly we were emerging as kind of like a voice. We had found our own voice rather than just being, we never saw ourselves as derivative of Saturday Night Live, but we knew the perception was that way. But this, this sketch really kind of finally set us apart. And I think that was the first time I started to feel that sense of, wow, we could do something here. We could have impact. And you clearly had ambition. Did you have confidence or did that come with time? It came with cocaine, actually. <laughs> um, again, keep in mind this, this period is the, is the early 80s when cocaine was rampant in Hollywood. 
Um, it was a short period, of course, because cocaine can, can build up your confidence to an almost absurd level, but it will also eventually make you crash. And John Belushi's death, and I remember not that John Lennon died from cocaine overdose, but John Lennon and John Belushi, two cultural heroes of mine, died around that same time and kind of ended that period to some degree for me. But no, I, I from week to week, you know, I think Mel Brooks said it actually, looking at that blank piece of paper is the scariest thing in the world. You can't really develop a lot of confidence because you don't know if you're ever gonna think of a funny idea again. And you live on the edge of panic and anxiety at all times. Like, can I come up with another thing like that? You know, can I top myself, you know? And you're chasing that all the time. And sometimes you achieve it. And sometimes when you reach a certain level of wisdom, you just let go of that. And I finally did. But at that time, no, I never felt any true confidence. I may have felt momentary arrogance, you know, at like the success or the triumph of a sketch. But I knew that that was over once it was over. And next week was another story, you know. And for the first, you know, for, I guess, five or so years of Seinfeld, you were an absolutely central figure creatively in an awful lot of it. Yeah, well, I think that, you know, the, the show, they had done like, I can't remember now, three or four episodes um, before I got there. They had done like a pilot, then a whole year went by and they did like three or four episodes and then another year went by. So, so Seinfeld was something that did not click right away with NBC at all. There had been this late night uh, executive, Rick Ludwin, who kept, he kept it alive, really. He kept it alive. And uh, uh, Larry had wanted to hire me right off the bat at the beginning of the show, but they wouldn't let, they, Larry wasn't in charge at that time. There were these other more veteran showrunners running the show at first. And if you look at those first couple of shows, they're much more, even though they have the Larry David, Jerry Seinfeld sensibility, they're much more traditional sitcoms and uh, in terms of structure and style. And they would not allow me to come work uh, on the show because Larry was not in charge and they didn't want Larry to have that kind of power. But after the show got picked up for the 13 episodes, he was able to divest himself of those other showrunners and take over the show. And that's when he hired me. And I came in and as much as I love Jerry and Larry, as much as I could sit in a coffee shop and, and you know, just you know, kind of banter with them, I also had a lot of other interests as well that I was able to, because they had the confidence in me, I was able to bring that to the show. And that was an element that the show didn't really have, opening up the show a little bit, taking advantage of Michael as Kramer a little bit, and sort of expanding what that show could be. And I had the support of Larry and Jerry. So it was a, a very exhilarating time as well because I was allowed to sort of experiment with the form. I'd come in with a strange episode and they'd love it, you know, and they would push for it and they would make sure it got done. And so a lot of that stuff wound up being kind of part of the style of Seinfeld. And were you surprised, Larry, that the show became as big as it did, not only in New York and L.A., but everywhere in between? Absolutely. I mean, again, if, like Larry had said to me, we'll do 13 episodes, we'll make a little money, and then we'll go on with our lives. There was no, And through the whole time I was there, Larry was always going, please cancel us. I don't want to do this anymore. He was always feeling pressure uh, to produce on that show. And so we never had the idea that it was going to be a wild success. Uh, in fact, it was struggling in the ratings. We used to lose to Jake and the Fat Man. We used to lose to, uh, and this was a source of tension between Larry and Richard Lewis. We used to lose to Richard Lewis's show, Anything But Love. Welcome back to the program. I was telling the, uh, the audience 
earlier, there's just a handful of shows like this. You're in very, very good company. And uh, the only other two I could think of was uh, 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 Lucille Ball show, I Love Lucy. You do? Uh, the Jackie Gleason oh, show. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, and, and this one. But there's a few others that will be on uh, television forever. Get smart. Is that still on? Oh, oh, MASH. You still see MASH a lot? MASH. Yeah, you but, know? The, yeah but there's not more than a handful of these shows. So that's no. really quite an accomplishment. We, ne we never knew it when we were doing it. Mm -hmm. I actually always thought it would be like a small, popular thing with a certain, you know, urbane type yeah. audience such in, as in, yourself. In the beginning. Oh, thank you very much. Yeah. <laughs> but we were hanging on because NBC saw something in the demographics that they liked. Rick Ludwin was this champion for us, you know, and... And the show was actually, unlike almost every sitcom, it was legitimately funny, you know? And I think that was something that really, when I look back, it's like, we really delivered the goods on that level, you know? So there was this kind of cult thing going on at that time. And then finally they came to Larry and they said, we want to put you on after Cheers. And Larry said, and this is classic, it's a well-known story, he said, and, he, and we were on like Wednesdays at 930 and they wanted to put us on that Thursday night powerhouse lineup. And he said, anybody who doesn't watch us on Wednesday night can go F themselves. And Jerry and Jerry's managers and everybody were like, whoa, whoa, wait, wait, wait. And they finally talked him into accepting Thursday and the show exploded at that point when it went to Thursday. And that was the big difference uh, in terms of just reaching that audience and then we discovered and this is something that i uh, that i it's hard to really you, you can't predict the success of something on that level a phenomenon like that you just can't predict it but what i've learned because now i've been all over the world and seinfeld plays all over the world is that everybody no matter what your ethnicity no matter what your background everybody's got a friend like kramer everybody's got a friend like george you know it's like it's it, 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 it was such archetypes on a certain level that people connected to it. You know, whatever country I, I was in Nigeria, you know, in Palestine, wherever I was, Iraq, there's people who's go, my friends just like Kramer, you know, and I realized that it, it kind of transcended itself, which was not our intention. It just because of the good writing, the good casting, all those things kind of coming together, it really sort of uh, transcended its own uh, genre. Fantastic. So we have a lot more to talk about. I don't want to stay here too long, but, you know, Jerry obviously shaped Jerry. George was very closely tied to Larry. You are widely credited with shaping Cosmo Kramer. Well, I think you have to give Michael a lot of credit also, of course. Uh, and, but the thing was that um, they didn't really, feel, you know, Michael Kramer, the Kramer character, who's based on a real guy who also is a very eccentric, crazy guy, um, who was Larry's actual next door neighbor. Um, that character was really not being exploited on the show uh, at first. And he would come into the apartment, do a little bit and leave. And that was it, you know. So at a certain point, very early on, I felt like, wow. Imagine taking Kramer out of the apartment, giving Kramer his own story, you know, and between Michael and myself, I mean, I was somebody who was like, you know, into conspiracy theories and strange ideas. And, you know, so I was able to inject the Kramer character with a lot of those traits and give him stories that were based on him getting into trouble because of things that he thought or mistakes or illusions or delusions that he had. And again, Larry and Jerry, in their wisdom, saw, wow, this is like a whole, this is like something that we didn't even think about, was the Kramer character kind of exploding. And that's sort of what happened. Between Michael's interpretation of the character and my ability to inject him with certain idiosyncratic qualities that were very, very different in contrast to Larry, to Jerry and George, um, that chemistry really worked well. Somewhere along the line, you co-write a film with Bob Dylan. Yes. I'd love yep. to talk about Mast and Anonymous, and I know that you uh, both operated under pen names. I think it was Renee Fontaine yes. and uh, Sergei Petrov, as I believe, was Bob Dylan. Yes. But tell me was, how you was, met Bob, and, and let's talk about Mast and Anonymous. Well, 
I, I was lucky enough again to, uh, I was asked if I would be interested. Bob at that time, if you could believe it, wanted to do a TV show, a comedy TV show. He, you know, he's, he's on this never ending tour. He'd been doing it for years. At that time, he had a VHS player in the bus. And in the period leading up to this phone call that I got, he had been watching these Jerry Lewis movies nonstop. And he wanted to do a kind of a Jerry Lewis show with him, you know, like a half hour show, like for HBO or something like that. And they, so Jeff Rose and his manager called me up and said, would you be interested in just sitting down and talking to him about this? And I was like, yeah, are you kidding? You know, it's like, I thought I'll have one meeting with Bob Dylan and I could brag to my friends, you know, I met Bob. I actually hung out with Bob Dylan, you know, but as it turned out, when I met him, we just started working right off the bat. The first time we met, he showed me a box that he had and he opened the box and there was all this scrap paper in it and he dumped it out on the table and, and it all had like little lines and names of people. And he's like, I don't know what to do with this. And I'm like, well, you could take this line and it could be said by this character and then you could have this guy. And almost like we started playing with this kind of William Burroughs cut-up technique, this collage technique, which I realized is a, is a way that he writes songs also. But we started to use that uh, as a kind of a, a, a template for the script. And we spent a long, long time in very close quarters every day. And he's like the most disciplined writer he and Larry have a lot of similarities, by the way. They do their thing. If you like it, great. If you don't like it, there's nothing they can do about it. They are savants and very similar in that respect. And so he and I just wrote like 12 hours a day in this little cubicle or up at his little office. And that became this comedy show um, that we took to HBO. And... Um, we said to him, Jeff and my manager at the time, Gavin Pallone, and I said, you know, if you come to the meeting at HBO, there's no way they'll say no to you. You know, they, they could turn it down because it's a very weird, surreal show. It was like he was kind of like a Buster Keaton in this post-apocalyptic environment. Uh, and it was funny, but it was very strange, too, you know, and very um, idiosyncratic in the way that Bob's humor actually is. Most people don't realize that Bob is, is, is a very funny person and he's really into comedy. And so, so we went, I, he, he agreed to go to this HBO meeting and we met at Century City at that time. And um, at that time I was wearing, <laughs> I was wearing pajamas all the time. I wore pajamas, you know, that's what I wore. I, I couldn't deal with making a choice of like a, a t-shirt, a polo shirt, a collar shirt, jeans chinos so i just would wear pajamas all the time and he used to dress like which is more the way i dress now he dresses like a old west outlaw and so he's all dressed in black with a big black hat a black duster you know and he and i and this this weird duo we go into this hbo meeting i remember walking down the the hallway to chris albrecht's office who was the president of hbo and all the assistants and all the people working there were just like, who are these two freaks? And it was us. And we went into the meeting and immediately Bob, he, he got alienated by Chris right off the bat and walked to the edge of the office where they had these big picture windows. And he just stared out the window through the whole meeting while I pitched the show. And every now and then I'd go, Bob, is that right? And he'd go, uh -huh, you know, and he wouldn't really participate. Despite all that, because he was there and everybody was so intimidated and so excited, they bought this show. And we're like, wow, we're going to do this half hour comedy show with Bob Dylan. And when we came out of the meeting, Jeff and Gavin and myself were exhilarated, but Bob seemed kind of sullen and unhappy. And it's like, what's the matter, Bob? He's like, it's too slapsticky. I don't want to do it anymore. So we sold the show and he said, I don't want to do it anymore. And my manager, Gavin, said, you know, you've got to get off this train. You know, you've got to get off now. You'll be stuck, <laughs> you know, trying to make this work for the rest of your life. And I was like, look, this is Bob Dylan. I can't imagine anything more valuable than sticking with this 
riding this train to the last stop. And that's what I'm going to do. So I said to Bob, let's try to make it into something else. And he agreed. And we spent the next year kind of evolving this, this thing into a, the movie script that became Master Anonymous. And that's, that's how that happened. He didn't want, to, <clears throat> he, he at first didn't want to be in the movie. He, if he didn't want his music in the movie. Um, and so when we, when he finally agreed to be in the movie and use his music in some way, he didn't want to take credit for the screenplay because he thought people are going to just judge him. You know, if he takes credit for the screenplay and I was like, look, man, I can't take credit for it alone. That wouldn't be right. When I've forgotten all the best you to me were true. We wrote it together. We really did write it together. I mean, it was a true, and again, I can't believe it in some level, but we really did collaborate on that screenplay, you know? And so I, he finally said, well, okay, you know, uh, we'll use pseudonyms, you know? And he, boom, he called me up and he's like, my pseudonym is Renee Fontaine. And it's like, wow, I haven't even thought about this. I have to come up with a name now. And I came up out of the blue. I don't know where it came from with Sergei Petrov. And that's how it happened. We had to get special permission from the Writers Guild to use the pseudonyms. Also, at that time, the original script, we created this whole, which happened on The Dictator also, uh, strangely enough. We created a whole source material that we made up, like it's from this famous book, this famous Mexican novel, and we had this whole thing. It was on the cover page originally. It's not there anymore. And so that's, you know, we wanted to sort of, that's Bob, those layers, the code. You know, if you want to figure it out, you have to go through the code, you know. And you talked about similarities that uh, Bob and Larry had shared a lot of traits. You've worked with some absolutely brilliant, brilliant people. Seems like Sasha Baron Cohen also in a, in a different way had some of those traits and then some that were unique to him. Very, very true. I mean, um, he comes out of a completely different world. It is a Jewish world. It's a, it's a British Jewish world of comedy. But like he wasn't, when I met him, and I'd seen the, the TV show already by that time, the, the Ali G show, <clears throat> and I finally met him. He really didn't know who Andy Calford even was. So he had developed this kind of sensibility all on his own. No diggity. Check this out. I is with none other than my main man, Sam Donaldson. Him be the boss man of ABC News. And today we is chatting about the media. Let's talk about when the media actually changed events in politics. Does you remember when the two journalists brought down the government over the scandal of Waterworld? Well, Watergate here. Well, I yeah. think it's Waterworld, and it was confusing it with Stargate. Well, are you talking about when we had a president named Nixon? For real. And there was a burglary at a complex called Watergate. There ain't no connection between this and the bloke from Dancers with Wolves. No. That's where I thought you were going. Waterworld oh, was a very bad movie, yo. in my estimation. Yo, 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 no doubt. And again, there was a savant-like quality to it. It was unique. Uh, it was original. I'd never seen anything like it. And again, in the same way that Andy Kaufman or Steve Martin excited me, Sasha excited me. It's like, wow, this is a, this is another breakthrough in comedy. This is a, a, a transcending all the comedy that's come before it, you know. And so I got very lucky that we hit it off and wound up working together. But because I was very, I was already a massive fan of his from the TV show. And Borat goes on and becomes one of the biggest hits of all time. Very, again, in the same way as Seinfeld, there's no, uh, what I knew about Borat as we were making it was, it was really funny. Just like Larry and I would say, let's make the funniest TV show. 
Sasha and I said, let's make the funniest movie we can. Let's make the funniest movie of all time. Let's make that our aspiration here, you know? And as we were doing it, I'm going, wow, we are actually making the funniest thing that I've ever seen. Hello. Hello. My, name is, my name is Pat Haggerty. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. Should I make a joke about my mother-in-law? Yes. In America, that's a very popular joke. Do you have a mother-in-law joke? Yes. All right. I had a sexy time with my mother-in-law. At what time? Sexy time. I made a sexy time with my mother-in-law. You had sex with your mother-in-law? Yes. Uh, I don't think that Americans would find that funny. No, it is not a joke. Yeah. We're talking about... Um, Humor. What oh, yes. You, you asked me about my mother-in-law. Do you have a joke about your mother-in-law? No. Why make a joke on a mother-in-law? Um, you know, I don't know if people are going to dig it. I don't know if it's going to be a hit. I don't know what Fox is going to do with it. Will they distribute it even? I don't know what's going to happen. But I know, I knew it was funny. And sure enough, funny tr often transcends all other limitations. If you get to an audience with something that's truly funny they will respond because it's almost like an unconscious involuntary response. When people laugh at something uproariously, they're not even thinking about it. They're just reacting. And when you have that happen, you know, it, it's, it's, it connects, it makes people connect. And I found the power of comedy through that as well. And the filming of that must have been, you must have had some incredible moments because I know Curb is outlines and then an awful lot of it is improvised. This was imp improv in a very different, much more visceral way, I, I would say. It was, a, it was really like a new form in a sense. I mean, I always felt like Sasha should have been nominated for an Oscar because he wasn't just, act, like, I love Marlon Brando, you know, and, but, but the acting that Sasha was doing, he had to do with real people. And he had to keep up the facade. If he let go, if he dropped the accent and started talking in his regular voice or, you know, whatever would happen, you know, that it would never have worked. He had to stay in character from the time he came out of the hotel to the time we went back to the hotel at the end of the night. And he put himself in harm's way also in the search for, we all did, but especially him in that search for that comic nugget that was out there. And when we didn't find it, we would often have to, when we didn't find it, it was because something had unraveled and now the police were after us and we would have to like run, you know, we actually would run, drive away, maybe even have to go to another state to do, to do a take two of that scene, you know? So it was the tension and the edge was like robbing a bank, but we got away with it a lot. And so we were just, we were just in this kind of very aroused state all the time, you know, and looking to, you know, with Sasha, it's like just when things started to get uncomfortable, that's when the scene really started to take off also. And so, you know, I would be filming and watching and almost I'd be so uncomfortable, I almost couldn't take it. But I also knew that it was genius at the same time, you know. What's the Boba de la Genia White House in Washington? Wow, 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 wow. Uh-oh, police. What? Okay. Can I ask uh, who you are? Secret Service. Ah, like a KGB. I'm sorry? Is there a problem? No, there's no problem. We're just trying to figure out why you guys are going down 15th Street uh, with some high-tech equipment when you're right by the White House. Okay. And you're in an ice cream truck. I'm just trying to figure out what's going on. Okay. I make a film about America. So I go to New York and Washington, and then I drive, we now drive uh, toward California. Oh, so you're and driving all across America filming America? Yes, and eventually uh, arriving in Malibu, I in, um, there's a woman there that I uh, love, that I uh, Hope to meet and marry them. Oh, really? You have ID on you? You have a driver's license with you or anything? Um, and that tension, I think, is a big part of the movie. You feel you feel the tension and you feel the enthusiasm uh, as we're shooting it. Was there anything that you got on tape that didn't make it that you remember that? Oh, that was so fucking funny. 
and for whatever oh, this, reason, didn't make it into the film? This ton, uh, the, the first cut of, of Borat was six hours. So there's a lot of material that didn't make it. Some of it's on the D. I've never even looked at the DVD. I know there's some deleted scenes on the DVD. But what was interesting about Borat, like the dinner scene, where he uh, he insults all the southern people to dinner, and then he goes upstairs. Is it possible to uh, excuse me? Is it possible to go and do a you know, to be how you say in upstairs. the you know? Upstairs. Yes. Just say, say excuse me a moment. I need to that do uh, what you, you say in. You go upstairs. Yes. Thank you. I think that the cultural differences are vast. Exactly. And I think he's a delightful man, and it wouldn't take very much time for him to really become Americanized. Thank you very much. I feel much better. Cindy, where shall I put this? Just, uh, where shall I put this? Oh. Um. <laughs> Maybe in the other room. He brings down the bag of feces. We did that scene three times, you know? So there's other versions of that scene that were equally funny, but different in different ways. And we would choose, that was the best one, you know? But the other ones are fascinating. You know, from, an anthrop from a comedic anthropological point of view, there were tons of scenes. We did a Civil War reenactment where he gets dressed up like a civil, they, they, he joins a Civil War reenactment, dresses like a soldier, and when there would be dead soldiers on the ground, he would climb on top of them and pull their pants down and start to like hump them. And the other soldier's like, what the hell are you doing? And he's like, in my country, when you have dead soldier, you take him that the, to the victor goes to spoils, you know? And so all those scenes, <laughs> we were chased away, you know? So a lot of scenes were either done more than once or they were done and they just didn't fit into the narrative at some point. Uh, we had a couple of different endings uh, uh, that we worked on before we the, 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 the final ending that's used in the movie. All that stuff to see the uh, the evolution of scenes, the evolution of ideas was very fascinating also, you know. And there are scenes that aren't funny, but they are, like I say, anthropologically fascinating, you know. We did like a, these, this in Bruno, sorry, we did these swinger parties where Bruno's trying to learn how to be straight. And we went to swinger parties and he's watching people have sex and he's touching them. And, you know, it, we, we had to do two or three different parties in order to put together the scene. And th it was like such, I could not, often I could not believe that it was happening, you know? So um, I, I just, you know, it was like that, it was such an exhilarating experience making the movie that, um, that I think that feeling is really in that movie, which is great. So one of the things that comes up in Borat and some of your other work is a lot of comedy comes out of jokes about race. And we're now in America at a very interesting time talking about race. And I'm sure you saw they now put a, uh, what are they calling it, a disclaimer or, or something explanatory on the front end of Blazing Saddles. Yes. Which I'm sure you agree is in the upper echelons of the, you know, the all-time canon of comedy. Absolutely. Are we losing the ability, Larry, and do you worry about our ability to joke? Well, it's a very complicated question, which I've thought about deeply quite a bit. I mean, my feeling, I have a few different feelings about it, and some of them are contradictory. I, I understand we, the white Jewish uh, uh, post-World War II comedy has had a good run. You know what I mean? Um, and I've been, I've been lucky enough to be part of that. But I don't think of anything having lasting you don't you don't watch too much comedy from the 30s and 40s anymore you know what i mean everything is kind of temporary in popular culture to some degree and when you're in the middle of it it's very hard to imagine that it's not going to always be that way but it's not going to always be that way the things that people were laughing at in the 20s or the 30s or the 40s or the 50s 
people don't even know they exist anymore, let alone laugh at them. You know, something like Seinfeld is really a, an anomaly in a way that it's still from that era. If you think about you, you would be hard pressed. I'd be hard pressed to name too many other comedies, sitcoms from that period. You know, it happened that Seinfeld has survived somehow. But even Seinfeld someday will have will will have an endpoint. You know, all popular culture has a kind of an endpoint. So that's one thing. I think when we're in the middle of it, it's hard to imagine that, you know. And so I think the other thing is that it's inevitable that there be new voices, you know, and you need new voices to keep it revitalized, to revitalize comedy. Uh, it needs You need to hear from people that have not been heard from before. So what's happening is you have this temporary fragmentation of comedy. There's the Louis C.K., there's people that still laugh at Louis C.K., and there's people who are horrified by Louis C.K. There's people who find Borat funny or find Borat offensive, you know? There's all, there's all these different things now that are fragmented, like little islands of comedy that eventually a new vocabulary will have to emerge. And, you know, so that women and, and non-binary people and people of different ethnicities will be able to express themselves and be funny and find that new universal language. So in a way, I lament the loss of the past, but I also am excited about the future and finding and being part of that, uh, you know, uh, synthesis of that new language of comedy. And on Larry Charles' Dangerous World of Comedy on Netflix, you have found a way to talk about some of the most uncomfortable issues that sort of is, you're right at the intersection of where we are as a society and issues like race. And I'd love to hear about, you know, the genesis of that show. Um, You know, I think you're doing things there. It's sort of like, you know, the equivalent of what Phil Rosenthal has done feeding himself around the world yeah. only with te- only with teeth and balls. Yeah, yeah possibly so. Uh, and I love Phil also. I'm a, a, we're friends and he's... Oh, a, yeah, he's hysterical. Yeah. Um, I didn't want to fall back. I, I feel like to stay relevant for someone like me, I have to I have to be more radical, you know, than almost anybody else, you know. I don't want to fall back on my laurels I don't want to do just another sitcom or just another comedy movie. I, I just wasn't interested in that. And I reached the point where really I, I was turning down all that kind of stuff. I couldn't get my own things off the ground. And I was at this kind of cross crossroads, literally. And then Trump got elected. And I started to think, God, what can I do in my position, you know, to have some impact on this conversation, you know? And... I thought, wow, I I can actually go to these other countries and talk to comedians who are really, you know, because we talk about dangerous comedy here. And look, there was nothing more dangerous than what Sasha was doing, especially, I mean, as much as it was dangerous with Borat, it was even more dangerous with Bruno because of the homophobia and all that kind of stuff. It was a dangerous world. It really, really was. And I, I felt like I didn't want to back off of that idea. You know, I wanted to walk right into the middle of it. And I thought, wow, if I just, if I go to these countries and I'm not pranking people, but I'm going to places where I could get killed and there are comedians there, that would seem like an interesting show for me to do. It's a dangerous world filled with hate and violence and war. And amazingly enough, (laughs) comedy. When you are not funny, you are what in English? You are not funny. (laughs) (laughs) You make a living as a comic in Iraq, helping people forget they live in a war zone. How do you break into comedy in Somalia? Look, now, Google it. Please, Google it. It takes brave people to make dangerous comedy. It's a therapy. The little laughter takes away the stress. Risking their lives just to make people laugh. You said that. I didn't say that. (laughs) Comedians and actors and TV and filmmakers who make comedy in places where it doesn't belong. Get people to laugh just a little about that which might be the most sacred. That we might get them to open up a little bit. 
You discovered your comic sensibility as a tool for survival. If you talk to a Western equivalent, it's like, oh, I did a little show for my grandparents, or I was in a talent show at school. Spoiled, spoiled. Right. <laughs> we live our lives. We like doing our nails, too. I'm making a statement. Yeah. I will do a genocide joke, but it will be well-crafted. Veterans have a sick sense of humor. That's how we deal with the job we gotta right. do. I know you girls know this, but you know, once you go cooked, you're hooked. <laughs> if you know my reputation and you know my work, I have the authenticity, I have the sort of uh, believability to go to these places where I have fans, by the way, as I discovered, and be able to explore these ideas, these comedy ideas, and try to find a philosophical foundation for comedy. And so, uh, and I, I went to the Russo brothers, uh, of all people, they have, they had a great background in comedy. They were doing their, their Marvel movies and they were wildly successful and they were looking to produce something. And I sat down with them and told them this idea and they loved it. And we went to Netflix and sold that idea. It was one of the easiest things that I've ever sold, but then I had to do it, you know? And I had to make, I, I was like, did, I did a lot of research and I was like, wow, all these, all these countries have comedians. No matter, I couldn't believe that like Syria or Somalia or places like that, there was still comedy going on there in the midst of war, in the midst of famine and pestilence and chaos and destruction and violence. There was always comedy. I thought, wow, that says a lot right there, you know. So I had to go to those places. And some places, this, the State Department wouldn't let us go. I was not allowed to go to Syria. Uh, that was originally on the plan. But, but I thought I have to, I have to, I can't like take the safe way out. You know, I can't go to England or Italy or France. You know, I have to go to countries that are actually dangerous. And I would say, well, I, I want to go to Somalia. And they actually went, okay, you can go to Somalia. And I was like, really? Are you sure? And I wound up committing to going to Somalia. And that was a, a pre pretty scary uh, experience. But in all of these places that I went to, Iraq, Saudi Arabia, Nigeria, Liberia, which is just post-Civil War, and of course, Somalia, which is just rubble, you know, um, I, I not only met, I, I didn't go in with any kind of emotional uh, quotient in my mind, but I wound up finding it to be an extremely emotional experience as well. And that that layer was something that I did not intend, but that emerged very quickly once I started doing it. And the images of you walking the streets of Lagos in particular, I mean, you are the only white person yes. there. Yes. Uh, and you go deep on their culture and how rape is a big comedic platform there. Yes. Um, and you see in the crowd men and women laughing. Yes, yes. And, and here, that's rape is tough to make funny here. Yes. What was but that experience time, like in Lagos? I'd love to hear a little more a time, about that. There was a time here, see that's part, that goes back to what we were talking about a second ago in terms of like cancel culture or changing sensibilities. There was a time not long ago when I was younger that casual jokes at the expense of women, at the expense of minorities, it was not a big deal. It was not like uh, people were shuddering at those things. They were laughing and embracing it. So when I went to these places, I, and Nigeria is a good example with the rape culture, I went in thinking, well, I'm going to do a critique. I'm going to really you know, show the, the hypocrisy of it. But when I got there and I would talk to the comedians and I would see what was going on, I realized that it wasn't that different than what, what we were doing. Maybe we're not doing it now, but we were doing very similar stuff just a few years back, you know. And uh, the, the male culture that dominates comedy here that's changing is still dominating comedy in Nigeria, you know. And so, I, again, I was trying to bridge that gap to show the connection it's not, you know, the good things about these countries are not that different than the good things about this country, especially in terms of comedy. But the bad things are not that different either. You know, we may have figured it out a little more quickly, 
Uh, there might be more pressure to change here than there is in places like that. But the fact is that, you know, this is one of the reasons why comedy is changing, because a lot of these things that we took for granted, a lot of these subjects that we thought, oh, it's okay, you could just say anything about anybody, um, that has changed here. And slowly it's changing in Nigeria also. So now we're in this sort of strange time when we're all, you know, certainly can be creative, but getting stuff into production is tough at the moment. What's in your draw that you pulled out during the, uh, the COVID-19 era that you pulled out and said, I think I'm going to take another look at that? Or, or is there something else that you've now had the time to explore that you didn't before? I'm not the kind of person, generally speaking, <clears throat> to whip out uh, old stuff. And um, I, I, because I, I always feel like you know, it's gonna, I, I'm gonna need to rewrite it from scratch anyway, you know? Um, so before this happened, before the pandemic really hit, I was working on a number of projects that I was hoping to sort of make and now, I, but I also was thinking I'm going to do a YouTube channel and put my stuff on YouTube. Some of the old stuff that people haven't seen. I have tons of pilots and lots of stuff. I have a, a Seinfeld episode uh, that never got filmed, you know. And, and so uh, I, I thought that's a good place. The YouTube would be a good place for that sort of content. But I also wanted to do new stuff, kind of building on dangerous comedy and building on other ideas that I had about religion or whatever it might be. And so I started writing, I've written a number of projects actually during this time that I'm now trying to figure out, instead of taking it to a production company possibly, figure out some way, can I produce this myself in my house? You know, And that's what I've been working on again. I'm trying to find a way, I'm trying to take another path, you know, uh, rather than fall back on the way things were done before. And we'll see what happens. But it's, it's, it's new stuff. Uh, and it's exciting to me uh, creatively. I wouldn't feel creatively exhilarated if I was just using old material. So I need for myself, for my own muse, I need to push further out. And that's what I've been doing lately and figuring that kind of stuff out. And it sounds like all these years later, you're having just as much fun as when you were 22, 23 working on Fridays. I feel extremely creatively um, excited about the future. I feel like I'm able to comment on things. And, I ha and now I have the confidence of, uh, I have no fear of failure. You know, I have failed. I have felt failure. I know what failure is like, and I'm still here. You know, and it gives me the confidence to push, to push that line, you know, again, not in the way that we're talking about in terms of offensive, you know, for the sake of being offensive, but in terms of what is funny, how do we define funny, what, why is something funny to one person and not another, exploring those ideas, and then finding vehicles to be able to um, express it. Uh, this was an absolute joy. Thank you, my friend. It was great to meet you. I hope to see you again soon, and please take care of yourself. Thank you. You too. Thank you very much for listening. And for more content just like this, visit AdvertisingWeek360.com. Production on this episode was by Jack Hirschman and Brendan Porter. An original music was by Ian Levy.